everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or in memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. This week's episode has been dedicated by Elisheva Horowitz in memory of her mother, Esther Yocheved Batchaya Lea Vegershon, for her seventh yard site, which takes place on the 11th of Av. May this podcast and all the Torah learned by her family be a blessing. Welcome back to Matan's one-on-one podcast. I want to update you regarding several exciting events at Matan. Matan will mark 35 years of women's learning with the Yishai Rebo concert at the Jerusalem Theater on October 8th or the 13th of Tishrei right before Sukkot. If you will be here in Israel, we would love to see you there. Registration for the coming academic year is well underway. Please check out the Matan website, matan.org.il, for all relevant information. Matan will be running its annual ELO program from September 11th through 22nd to the 15th to 26th of ELO. The ELO program is a great opportunity to get a taste of Matan and a wonderful way to usher in the holidays. Check out Matan's website and all social media platforms for the scheduled shoe ream towards the end of the summer. Each week we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea in that week's Parsha. Parshad Vet Hanan opens while Moshe is still deep in the first part of his address to the people, the historical oration. Already the second chapter of the Parsha opens the second and largest portion of Moshe's address, Nuum HaMitzvot, or the Commandments Address. Here we have general warnings to keep the mitzvot, Moshe's repetition of the Ten Commandments, which will be the topic of today's conversation, the first Parsha of Shema, and the Parsha ends with the doctrine of chosenness, Aliot Am Segula. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Atara Ice, who directs Midrashat Nishmat's Miriam Glaubach Center and the U.S. Yoetzot Halacha Fellows Program. She herself is a Yoetzot Halacha, as well as a Geffen Fertility Counselor and a Shosheret Educator. She is passionate about making sure every woman has a dignified experience in asking any question relating to reproductive health and Jewish law. Atara, it's a pleasure to have you here today. It's such a pleasure to be here. Now, we are looking at these early parshiot in Dvarim in last week's episode and this week's episode and the coming episodes. And one of the main things that we're seeing is to a certain degree repetition of earlier passages in the Torah, but that there are also significant differences between those passages. And today we are going to be looking at a commentary of Rav Hirsch, who sort of gives us a whole way of looking at the section in the parasha. So take us into that piece that you have for us today. Sure. Yosefa, when I was thinking about your mission in this podcast of bring us a figure, bring us an idea that is seminal, I said, well, I think we can get two in one shot here. And uh, I felt that it would be such a zuchut to bring to your audience a comment that Rev Hirsch makes, which I found very, very significant. He makes the point that in Perak Dalid of Devarim, we see the most fundamental principles of Yahadut. Yosefa, if I were to ask you, give me, what are the most fundamental principles of Yahadut? What would you put on your list? My list is always very short, and it's prophecy. Because if you don't believe in prophecy, then the whole thing kind of loses, loses its significance. Wow. So I kind of feel like, well, I already know his answer, so it was really hard for me to think of 
what else would I put on my list? But I know that, yeah, we know that a lot of people like to boil things down. Let's boil it down to the 10 most important ideas. Let's boil it down to three. Or 13. Or 13. (laughs) Or let's boil it down. I mean, I personally love that conversation, the the Hakdamat, the Ein Yaakov, where um, there's the Machloket, you know, what's the most important Pasuk in the Torah? And uh, and the winner is a Pasuk which talks about consistency, right? Right, bring the daily Tamid uh, every every single day. Mm-hmm. But Rav Hirsch points this in a different direction. And again, once you see it, it's like you can't unsee it. He says that the two fundamental principles of Yahadut, the first one is God's oneness and his nature being beyond sensory grasp. And the second one is that man was created in the image of God. But I think what's even more fascinating is the way in which he draws this out. I just want to give our audience a little bit of a, of a background to Rev Hirsch really, really briefly. And I want to thank uh, two sources for this. One is Rev Yitzlak Blau, who actually was our podcast guest last week, and he has a number of shirim online about Rev Hirsch. And the other is Dr. Avigal Rak Zichrona who has a great book on, on the commentators and their different contributions. And I've, I've mentioned her book before, and, uh, and it's a book that's also forthcoming in translation into English. So just briefly about Rav Hirsch, he was born in 1808 and he lived until 1888, and he really served as an important model for contemporary modern orthodoxy. Uh, He had a belief in the value of secular wisdom and education, and he was also an advocate for greater educational opportunities for girls, uh, and those are two values that still resonate very much in the modern community. And... uh, well, there are important differences between the worldviews of Rav Hirsch and those that uh, eventually he inspired or generations that later look back at him as an early inspiration. In many ways, the community that he led in Frankfurt, his final and longest lasting uh, position, represents the forerunner of 20th century modern orthodoxy, particularly in the States. Uh, the commentators that wrote in the in the modern period, they are unique because they were really dealing with a number of, of broader movements in the world. And those movements and their feelings about them make their way into their commentaries. Those movements are the Haskalah, emancipation, the reform movement, and, gen- and assimilation, and also biblical criticism. And so in all of the commentaries of the of the modern era, we're going to see some sort of conversation, whether it's felt or also said outright. Uh, Rav Hirsch specifically was already a pulpit rabbi from a very young age of 22. Uh, and in his first position, he was there for 11 years, where he wrote his work, Chorev, and also the 19 letters. He had another two shorter stints, and then he arrived in Frankfurt to lead a very small community that was sort of almost like a step down professionally than his previous ones, but it was a community in which he identified with ideologically, and eventually it grew and became a very successful, blooming and booming community in Frankfurt, where he lived from 1851 until his death in 1888. Just briefly about his commentary, uh, as I said, that his commentary, first of all, was one of the most prominent and, and popular in his generation. One of the few people actually was popular in his, in his own time, which is a nice change from the general trends of history. Uh, his great-grandson, Rav Breuer, writes the following about his commentary. He says, one may say that without any concern of exaggeration, Rav Hirsch's commentary on the Torah was in its time and in its era akin to Rashi's commentary for the Jews of Germany. 
Men, women, and youths who wanted to study the weekly Torah portion would skip all of the classic Torah commentaries, including Rashi's commentary, in order to study Rav Hirsch's commentary. Uh, and I'll just end also with, uh, with Avigail Rak, who says, according to these words, the main aim of Rav Hirsch is to draw from the Torah the worldview of Jewish life. Meaning, Rav Hirsch didn't just look at his commentary, and you can read his introduction as just a commentary on the Torah. He was very clearly trying to educate, trying to present a broader worldview to those who were studying his commentary, and that reflects itself in the incredibly broad, diverse way that he looks at the Torah and how much he chooses to share with his audience. Uh, for Rav Hirsch, the aim of understanding the Pshat is to comprehend the Jewish worldview that the Torah comes to teach. That is how the verses shape the spiritual world of each and every person. And I think that that introduction, uh, again, that last piece being the words of Avigail Rak, really bring us into what you want to bring us now, which is that Rav Hirsch tries to present literally a worldview. Here's the most fundamental concept of the entire Torah. So with that, let's go back into Rav Hirsch. Yes, and I, I, before we launch right in, yeah. I do want to also say that for me personally, when I think of Shabbat afternoon as a little girl, or even as an older child, I think of my mother sitting down with Rav Hirsch. So Rav Hirsch uh, speaks to me very personally also because of that mimetic tradition of watching my mother learn Rav Hirsch. Beautiful. I would also say that for Rav Hirsch, when you're in Perik Dalid, you don't even have to go so far before you are given a text which speaks so directly to every age, right? It's like Ein Chadash Tachat Hashemesh, right? You're dealing with how do you pass things on? How do you give things over to the next generation? And that's exactly what's being discussed here in Perik Dalid. Um, for example, if you go into Pasuk Tet, it says, So this Pasuk is telling us to be exceedingly careful to watch our souls and not forget all that we saw with our own eyes and not have this leave our hearts. And we need to find a way to give this over to the next generation. That's a tall order. That is a huge command, especially if when you go on and, and, you and we, we, we read on, we're not describing, oh, and then I went to the store and then we walked over there. Like This is a much more intense description. This is the day that we were at Chorev. This is Matan Torah. And if we recall back to Shmot, right, as, uh, as per your point that, you know, part of what's going on here is how do we, right, we're, we're seeing a recollection of a story. So if you look back in Shmot, we know that this was a very unique spiritual experience in which we were experiencing what is known as syn synesthesia, right? So, right, that the, this, the nation is seeing the voices and um, and hearing the the sights, right? Everything is beyond our physical grasp. And Dvarim Perkdalit is also describing that, but it comes at it from a very different way. Because yes, it's describing, it was unbelievable. We came and we stood by the har and things are on fire. And there's all of the sound and light show that we remember from Shmot. But there actually is not a pasuk which directly tells us the same uh, switched, right? Seeing sounds and hearing sights. Did I get it right yeah, there? You got it yeah, right. totally. <laughs> okay. yeah. Um, the closest we could get, perhaps, is pasuk yud bet, where it says that Hashem spoke to you mitoch ha'esh from this this fire, and it says kol dvarim atem shomim 
Utmuna inchem ro'im zulati kol. Okay, so this pasuk first tells us that God spoke to us from the fire. So then tells us that we heard things, we heard a cold varim. Then it spe- specifically says we did not see a picture. And then the last fragment of that pasuk says zulati kol. So, Yosefa, what is the verb for that last section of zulati kol? What's the actual verb that is associated? Well, I think that it's it's definitely an unusual construct we have here. And the question is, do you take the verbs that are in the first part of the pasuk or do you or do you leave it as it is? Exactly. Right. I think that you have to hear and to see. And so according to the pasuk and shmot, it actually could be either because you can hear a sound or you can actually see the sound apparently. But either way, it's saying that there, there was really nothing that you were able to come out with there except some sort of sound. Right. Whether and you got it through your ears or you got it through your eyes, something about it also, that, that description of that experience lets us know that it wasn't like any other experience you could ever have. Exactly. And by the way, this is the second generation. So right. correct me if I'm wrong. Some people may have been. Some may have been there. there. And some definitely weren't. Some weren't. Yeah. And they're already, and it's interesting because at the beginning of the parak, it's talking about, well, you saw what happened in Baal Pa'or. And yes, they saw it. They actually yeah. knew the experience. They saw the drastic outcomes. Whereas then Hashem says, by the way, you also saw this, but not everyone who's being commanded this right. even actually saw it. And so the burden of giving over something that they themselves didn't fully experience, right? we're already seeing it's like one step removed. Yeah, it's also drawing back to this point about the fact that in the vision of the Torah, as long as you tell the story, it's like you were there. That, that's oh, like, wow. it's the Pesach idea. And Rabbi Sachs speaks about this very often. Uh, that it doesn't matter because we don't have history. We only have memory. And therefore, it's Baal Peor, right? Matan Torah. It's all the same because as long as we tell it in the story, it's just like we were there. Although you're right, on a technical level, these people weren't there. And what's, what's really unusual that you're drawing attention to is that it's speaking about a sensual experience as if they had it when they didn't. And that, I agree with you, is different than Pesach because you can talk about the events without having been there. But this is recalling a sensual experience that they didn't have. And yet we're told, right, the Rambam's language of leharot, right, that in every generation we have to show that we were through it, right? I I was thinking about the contrast between what we're supposed to do in order to preserve memory and give over the memory for um, for Yitziat Mitzrayim versus Matan Torah, where going a little bit ahead in the narrative in Perak Dalid, right? Again, this language of Shmirat HaNefesh, that we have to, V'nishmartem me'od l'nafshotechem. Which sounds like you're worrying about something bad. Well, we're used to that because it's taken to mean guard your health, right? right. It's the pasuk from which we learn all about Briut HaGuf right. and not just Briut HaNefesh, but well, and in a sense it is, because what it's saying is that if you in any way corrupt what you experienced by giving it some kind of visual representation, you, your soul is at risk, right? right? You did not see anything. There's nothing, to, there's nothing to write down here. There's no picture to draw here. The no. moment you try capturing this in some kind of physical representation, you are corrupting what happened. And where does Rav Hirsch take this piece? So Rav Hirsch takes this piece to say, he, he picks up on this shmirat hanefesh idea, the fact that we're guarding our souls because it was not our physical bodies um, and our five senses that experienced Matan Torah. It was our nefesh that experienced Matan Torah. And he says, we must preserve the purity of the concept um, and understand that there's nothing sensory here 
And that's exactly why the Peric launches into um, the dangers of what we would call nowadays iconography, mm-hmm. right? Of making a pesel, of making a tzmuna. Um, that's what's the da- that is that is a dangerous thing to do. And but but it's almost saying, well, you're going to want to do that because you we're, we just told you, don't you dare forget this ma'amad. Don't you dare forget this idea. And what do we do in order to not forget things? We draw pictures. That's exactly what we do. We make we make a clay model. And what this is saying is, you can't do that. You will corrupt the experience. So then how do you give it over, right? What is it that we have to do in order to make sure that we give over this most important concept of the revelation of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, when, as you pointed out, we weren't even there, right? This generation, the people are being told, your eyes saw this. Well, not all of them even saw it. And on top of that, the experience itself will be corrupted if we in any way try to give it over. I'm thinking now really about the comparison to Pesach. And the big difference is that when there's a historical experience, we have a lot more to, this is, I'm not even saying something, honestly, that's particularly enlightening, but I'm just thinking about it because for me, it's feeling new. That when you're thinking about Pesach, you have a story to tell and you can grab onto the story and you even can have props because you're allowed to have props. But when it comes to Har Sinai, which I would say is the other big formative experience that we had in our desert experience as a nation, we're really at a loss with how to how to keep it going because we don't have anything to tell because there's barely even any, well, we have the Aserat Hadibrot, right? we have the actual commandments, but we don't have a way to tell the story because we don't even have so many details of the story. And we can't represent it physically because we're not allowed to do that. And so I'm just sort of leaning into the the difficulty of what you're really presenting here in the parak, which is that, you know, we're told, remember that crazy experience you had, but but don't actually represent it in any form. So then what happens? What are you supposed to do? Right. And um, I think what's what's clear, uh, both Rav Hirsch says it outright, and it, it really, he's drawing it straight from the shot of our parak. what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to keep mitzvot, right? That in the actions of keeping mitzvot day to day, that's the best we can do to approximate in any kind of way that revelation experience, mm. which kind of feels a little anticlimactic. Yeah. Right? Like, okay, for example, build those Ari Miklat and that will do it for you. Will it? <laughs> will it really? And I think that it's, it's very, very hard. And I think Rav Hirsch is also, you know, there's a lot of discussion nowadays about for a human, what runs our body? Are we run based on our emotions or are we run, run based on our um our rational minds. And of course, we all want to think that all of the decisions that we make in this world are rational decisions and we can back them up. But there's a lot of evidence, uh, quite to the contrary, that really we are quite emotional beings and com- that our rational piece comes along and justifies uh, retroactively the emotional decisions that we make. And I was thinking about that idea in context of this Rav Hirsch, where Rav Hirsh is saying, yeah, we're, <laughs> right? Like, we're nefesh beings. We're nefesh, yeah. right? And if we, and, and, if we try to think otherwise, right? If we try to say we're going to take our even either our emotional mind or our rational mind and um, process anything as in- intense as matan Torah through that, we are missing the point. You know, this this idea of Rav Hirsch reminds me a little bit of a piece from from Rav Aram Yoshua Heschel. And 
this question, you're, you're one of the many things that you're bringing to our attention here. So one of them is this idea that we can't ever really know what happened. Rav Hirsch says you better not also depict it, again, according to the Psukim. But we also have this basic question of, well, what actually happened on Har Sinai? And when you look at the Psukim, you can try and do a textual analysis and compare the voices or the sounds, but, but ultimately you're kind of left pulling straws because we don't really understand even the words that are used. What, what does the word kol mean? What, what does the voice of God even mean? Like we use those phrases, but they become like tropes. And in God in Search of Man, on page 185, Heschel says the following. He says, we must not try to read chapters in the Bible dealing with the events at Sinai as if they were texts in, in systemic theology. Its intention is to celebrate the mystery, to introduce us to it rather than penetrate or explain it. As a report about Revelation, the Bible is itself Midrash. To convey what the prophets experienced, the Bible could use either terms of description or terms of indication. I'll just explain that Heschel has this idea where he says you have descriptive phrases, like that's a chair, that's a table. You understand you have a physical image when it comes to mind, or you have phrases of indication. Phrases of indication are phrases like music or beauty, right? They refer to an abstract concept, and we have a word that we appropriate to them, but we don't actually know what that concept means anymore once we have the word for it. And he says any description of the acts of revelation in empirical categories would have produced a caricature. That is why all the Bible does is to state that revelation happened. How it happened is something they could only convey in words that are evocative or suggestive. So words like coal or like seeing, seeing sound or hearing visions, they don't make sense because they're not supposed to make sense. We're not supposed to be able to come out and say, oh, now I get what happened. That I think also was where that faith comes in because we don't really understand, even when we read these psukim, what actually happened. That's really beautiful. It's interesting also to think that the, the psukim themselves and Rav Hirsch, when he's um, going through the parak, is definitely more com comfortable with voice than yeah. with sight. Sight is the real danger here. And again, he's saying that even before we were taking our phones and recording every single moment of our day, um, it's, I don't know, I remember a few years ago when, when um, videoing everything on our cell phones was becoming popular, I saw a comic strip where there was a picture of what Matan Torah looked like, uh, right, how it happened, and this is how it would have looked like if we were there in our days. We'd all be up there with our, with our cameras, you know, taking a, a, a video of it. Yeah. And it's like, no, we wouldn't have been there. Our nefesh wouldn't have been there. There would have been something missing already. But somehow it does seem like there's more of a comfort with voice, like voice is more um, is less of a danger than sight, yeah. which I think we can understand based on the fact that the world was polytheistic, and as you mentioned before, the word iconography. <laughs> Thank you, iconography. <laughs> uh, that that was a huge uh, issue in the world, and even in Hirsch's world of you know Christianity around him, iconography is even a debate within the Christian world. So. So those things are all, all significant. Well, I'm glad you um, brought us along to the concept of polytheism, yeah. because actually I think one of the points that is so significant, right? So again, Refer Refer is telling us this is one of the most fundamental ideas of Yahadut, this unique nature of God, which our senses can't fully grasp. Um, I think it's important to note that the discussion of iconography within this parak is not even getting to the point of polytheism. This is even if you believe there's one God, you cannot corrupt your concept of one God through any kind of physical representation. And it reminded me of uh, the famous uh, Rambam in Hilchot Avodazara, where uh, he opens up Hilchot Avodazara describing what was the, what was the, um, the path 
that led the world toward polytheism. And it was like, yeah, first they started with there's one God. And then what happened was that they said, oh, well, you know, that God made these amazing stars. And so why don't we be, th give thanks to Hashem for the stars by, by praising the stars? But then that was a, um, a, a slippery slope that led toward polytheism. And what I appreciate so much about this parak of uh, Parak Dalid and the way that Rav Hirsch is drawing it out is he's saying, hold on, before we even go toward polytheism, let's pause and understand that our understanding of monotheism will be corrupted the moment we try to give any kind of physical representations to something as otherworldly as that moment of revelation. It's interesting because I think that we've spent so many years accustoming ourselves to not having physical manifestations of the Torah, that when you speak, I almost think it's not even missing for me. Meaning when I think about the world today where every, everything has to be seen, right? It's not just enough to hear, you also have to see it. It's not enough to hear a song. You have to see the song. It drives me crazy. Um, but I think to myself, theologically, I think that to a certain degree, we have it almost in our genetics at this point, that there's so much about our religious life that is not tangible that we can't ever really represent. Of course, it presents tremendous challenges for people searching. But ultimately, I think many people from a faith perspective sort of tend towards a sensual experience of faith as opposed to a rational experience of faith. I actually will put a shout out here for a great series on the podcast 1840, if any of our listeners aren't familiar with it. It's a great, great podcast with many different series and all different, what he calls juicy, juicy modern issues. And he has two series at this point on rational Judaism. There are some people who that really speaks to them, but I think many of us end up leaning into a much more sensual experience of our faith because ultimately that's what we're left with. Um, the rational is I'm, I'm, I'm lumping rational in with, with icons, I know that, but I think that they, they come together. It's this, it's this desire to have it be something that's clear and logical. And I think that most of us end up leaning into the, the nefesh space that Rav Hirsch speaks about. Well, it's that we want something tangible, but there's something that's at risk yeah. if we're in the tangible. And therefore we and won't we go there. And therefore we're safe we're, if we're leaning into the nefesh place. Yeah. If we're leaning too much into, even into the intellectual, perhaps we're, trying to make it more tangible than it can be. Yeah. So with that, I think we can transition into the other part of Rav Hirsch, because again, he told us two fundamentals. Mm -hmm. And um, the second fundamental that he draws out from our Perek is the idea of every human being, B'Tselem Elohim. Everyone's now, created in God's image. In God's image. And this is so fascinating. Actually, my mother was the one who pointed that out. So the word Selem is a brayshit word, and it doesn't come up in the descriptions of the different physical representations of Matan Torah or, or God or anything like that. But what's going on here is that we have the Isur of Tselem in contrast to Tselem Elohim, mm -hmm. right? The phrase Tselem Elohim is, is actually, right? It is trying to show us the infinite nature of God, and yet it is borrowing a very finite word, but yeah. it's saying, let's use it in the right way, yeah. right? And if you contrast these two ideas, you have... Um, you have the Bain Adam Lamakom idea of not uh, creating a Pasel, of not having a physical representation of God. And this second idea that Rav Hirsch is seeing as so fundamental is Bain Adam Lechavero, that because of the unique nature of the infinite, of, of a Kadosh Baruch Hu, and the fact that we all have that in us, um, then we cannot, we cannot kill. 
we cannot murder, which is how Rav Hirsch answers the question of what in the world is this weird little interlude of Az Yavdil Moshe Shalosh Arim Be'eva HaYarden Mizrach HaShamesh, right? Like after describing this huge Matan Torah, suddenly it's like, oh, let's make these cities of, of refuge. And the Mefarshim go crazy about this. What is this doing here, right? Rav, uh, Rav David Tzvi Hoffman says, yeah, it's really just an interlude, right? We're about to start the big Ne'um HaMitzvot. And before we get there, we just yeah, need a space filler. We need a little space filler. Yeah. So here's a nice little space filler. But Rav Hirsch says, no, no, no. The content of this space, space filler relates directly to what we've been talking about. And it sets up another fundamental idea of Judaism. And that idea is that Rav Hirsch sees the Are Miklat as a topographical public expression of the fundamental principle of the dignity of human beings in the likeness of God. And so he is seeing this as one and the same. It's like there's nothing that might reflect what Salem Elohim really is, what the infinite nature of God is, more than setting up your society in a way in which that is honored, where this is the very first act that you do. And also just playing into the idea of it being, right, that, he, that, that Moshe is doing this on the east, right? So that's really, as we're getting back to Eretz Yisrael, evokes for us the second chait. As we're getting back to Eretz Yisrael, we have this idea, uh, this is evoking the fact that we kept being sent east every single time that we sinned. And here we are, and we're, we're getting back, we're on our way back to Eretz Yisrael, where we have this opportunity to build a model nation, a model state, and what are we going to do to truly live in a way that sees the Tzalem Elohim in every other human? But I also want to just remind us that the cities of refuge were places where people who committed homicide, essentially, well, you know, accidental murder, that they would go to to protect themselves, because in a world where blood revenge and avenging the, the deaths of others, whether it was permanent, whether it was uh, intentional or not, is something that was significant in the ancient world. We actually still see that today in a number of societies that still exist in Israel. But but this, the concept of the Arei Miklat, the city of refuge, is that any life that is lost has to be accounted for. And it has to be accounted for by making sure that the person who did it, even if it was by accident, that they understand the gravity of what happened. We have general questions about what was supposed to be accomplished there. Was it for the for the perpetrator? Was it for the victim? But to a certain degree, there there was a certain level of tikkun, a certain sort of retribution or some sort of change that had to happen. And spending time in those cities of refuge was a way to do that. I'll, I'll add in one interesting piece, which is that to a certain degree, these cities seem to have been thought to be almost external to Israel. It was a way of being outside of the land because they belonged to the Levites and these were didn't, were not part of any official allotments, but they, they were a way of putting people in exile while actually keeping them in Israel. And there are many places in the Torah that speak about the fact that the land of Israel can't actually carry on it anybody who is murdering. And so this was a way that we sort of alleviate the pain or alleviate, however, again, however that we can understand that, alleviate the tainting that we've done to the land of Israel by sort of putting them elsewhere for a certain amount of time. Um, but I think that this idea is is unbelievable, this idea that Rav Hirsch is taking the very odd juxtaposition of Arei Miklat, of the cities of refuge, with the Matan Torah idea, which, by the way, also a little bit reminds me of Shmot, where we also have a bit of an anticlimactic postscript to the story of uh, of making the Mizbeach and the different laws about what you're allowed to make it from. I also feel like the Torah 
is intentional about that. I mean, I don't want you to think that you can stay on these highs for a very long time. Ultimately, living a life of Torah means juxtaposing very moving moments of, of grandeur with very regular daily realities of what it means to be a human in this world. Exactly. I think that uh, you've just summed up very, very well just why this piece from Rav Hirsch speaks very deeply, I think understands the shot of our parak so very much and helps us understand um, what it means that it's not just this throwaway idea of like, okay, keep the, the chukim mishpatim and the, you know, just keep them. And that, that's the only way in which you can vehodatem levanechu livnei vanecha. Um, but I think that's really the message is that this is the way to perpetuate the experience of revelation in this world is through living the values through the mitzvot. Tara, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for the opportunity. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.